K-A-L-W. This is Uncuffed. I'm Ryan Pagan here at San Quentin State Prison, and I got three wonderful older gentlemen here. I'm sorry, guys. Slightly. I can't help it. All right, what do you want me to do? Okay. It's a serious piece, brother. <laughs> this is a serious piece. This is this is a serious, uh, you know, story that we're gonna be listening to. But uh, before we start, I'd like to hear uh, how y'all doing. Let's start with you, Tim. Hey, hi everybody. This is Tim Hicks, and uh, I'm doing great, Ryan. You know, except for the age. Uh, uh, that you're trying to mention and, and put us in that box right there. I ain't feeling that, but hey, you know. <laughs> we we can talk about it later after the show, all right? Uh, go ahead. What's up, y'all? This is Steve Brooks. Glad to be back on Uncuffed. I'm Anthony Carvalho, and I will agree with that, Steve. It is, it's great to be back on Uncuffed. And uh, after that uh, age discriminatory remark, I'm just wondering if I'm going to get thrown out of this room or die right here. Look, no, this that was basically some praise for y'all. You know, I, I respect you gentlemen. You know, you guys are, are wonderful uh, mentors to me. Um, you guys have been working down here in the media center for a while. So, you know, I'm, I'm really just giving you guys some praise, all right? All right so that's, that's some good news, right? Okay. In all seriousness, guys, you know, we've been all incarcerated for a long time. And because of the many years that we've been incarcerated, you know, we've had to deal with uh, some not so good news coming from the outside world, right? Tim, is there anything that you've experienced during your uh, 17 years of incarceration? Yeah, that's a heavy one right there. When I think about it, I lost a nephew, right, since I've been incarcerated. That hit me real hard, you know, like it was my brother's oldest son. And, uh, you know, he was at a, at, a, at a party and got into a confrontation and, you know, and just somebody shot him, you know, and out there in, uh, in, in Oakland. So, and every week I would call my family. So I made my weekly, my call and, um, you know, call my uh, my my pops and call my my younger brother, and he the one that gave me the news. So he told me that uh, my nephew got killed, which was my older brother's son. And so I, I got off the phone. My younger brother called my older brother, and you know he he, he started describing uh, the, the incident and what happened. You know, and and you know I, I I was speechless, man. You know, my my whole heart sunk. I started sweating. You know, it was just. It was horrible, man, you know, and, and but he, he actually uh, kind of calmed me down, you know, because, you know, that was like one of my favorite nephews, you know, so um, it, it, was, it, was, it was tough. It was, it was a tough one. How about you, Anthony? Uh, just a couple times, and uh, I'm going to try not to cry, but, you know, it, it's, it's tough. Um, my uh, wife was uh, diagnosed with breast cancer. She had come to the last visit, which was Valentine's Day, and acted really aloof, really strange, because she was hiding something. You know, you know your wife after 10, 12 years, and and um, I grieved so hard that here's my wife that's been with me for for this whole duration when I when I was a sinner, when I was a, a and not a good husband at all, and she's still with me, and I couldn't help, I couldn't even caress her or hold her. To say it was going to be okay, it was it was very very tough, very tough. Um, it's it's almost like she was trying to protect you because of this your situation. <laughs> she and actually you. said that, right? Yeah. She actually said that. Yeah. I, go, I go, why didn't you? I was actually upset. Why didn't you tell me? She goes, because I know you'd go crazy, and <laughs> you know yeah. your your partner knows knows who. And I, and I think like our families try to do that too when they're relaying these you know terrible news. They 
they're really trying to protect you and don't want you to act out in here. For me, you know, I've had many relatives pass away since I've been incarcerated. But the one that hit me the most was when my mother died. And I remember that day going to work and my boss comes up to me and he's like, hey, uh, I, I just got a call. Your counselor wants to uh, talk to you. And immediately right there when he told me that, my stomach sank. I knew something was wrong. And I remember when I was going, you know, to my building, back to my building to go talk to my counselor and all the correctional staff knew. They all looked at me. They all looked at me and and like I seen it in their eyes. Right. And so I knew something was wrong. And I remember when I went to my building and I went to the go see my counselor, my counselor told me. And uh, she said, oh, your mother passed away. And I really didn't know what to think. I, at the time I was just, I couldn't process it, right? She's always been there for me. And just, I couldn't fathom to think about her not being there anymore. You're completely detached from what's going on in the world as far as like funeral services and, and, and time to mourn with loved ones. But while you're in here, you know, you don't know who to go to. So we're about to listen to a story that talks about all of that. Steve, you produced that story. Why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Uh, yeah, this uh, is a story about one of our media workers, Vince O'Bannon, who had uh, lost his son uh, tragically. And one of his other sons just so happened to be in prison. And they were both grieving separately at different locations. And then they had this chance encounter where the son was transferred here and they were able to kind of process this pain together. Yeah, his son was transferred here. His name is CJ, and we're about to hear from him first in this story. Let's listen. I was in San Bruno County Jail fighting this case that I'm currently down for right now. I called my baby sister, Autumn O'Bannon. When she answered the phone, I was like, baby sis, what's happening? And she said, man, Somebody just killed our little brother. Uh, my name is Vincent O'Bannon. Um, been incarcerated nearly 14 years now. I was in a cell in San Quentin, and I left the cell and went and got on the phone. Called home, called my wife, and. Uh, She told me that my son was gone. My mother raised me in Baby Hunter's Point on Deadman Court, right across from Cashmere. Cause I grew up riding bikes with, going on bike rides and everything. Most of them all dead. Once I landed to uh, Chuckawalla State Prison, I, I, I reached out to the mental health counselors. The first time I talked to the mental, to a mental counselor, I really didn't talk to him because I had it in my mindset, this person just wanted to hear something from me so he can sit down and write it down on paper. And the last thing that I wanted was for some man, white man, to make a falsified mental 
assessment of my mental, emotional, and psychological being. He doesn't know where I come from. He doesn't understand where I come from. So I became uncomfortable with talking to them. I triple CMS out of Ironwood. They told me there's two places I was going to end up going. When they said San Quentin, like, Quentin, okay. I was like, man, I'm finna go see Pops. I say, hopefully they send me there. I go see Pops. And uh, sure enough, they put me on a van. They told me I was going to San Quentin. So I'm on a van, and I'm like, I'm sweating. I'm like, ah, man, this really happened. When I got off the van, it was a dude in R&R. I told him, I said, hey, man, man, my dad here, man. His name Vincent O'Bannon. He was like, man, I know OGV. He down in the other media room. Once I got up to North Block and got settled in, I made my way down here. People was like, he worked down in the media room. I'm like, where's that at? So they pointed me there. So I came down. Before getting here, nah, I ain't want to talk to nobody about nothing. When I rounded that corner, they come here to this media room, and a dude walked in, and Pops came walking out. My whole body got hot because I felt as though, man, I'm with my dad, so I can talk about this now. I can get it off. So I'm sitting down here in San Quentin News editing some photos, and I get a tap on my shoulder. Someone asking me to come outside. They needed to talk to me. It wouldn't take long. So I get up and go outside, and I saw CJ. But when I walked out that door and I saw him, uh, it was just a wave of emotions, and I couldn't do nothing but embrace him. I haven't seen him in double-digit years. So when he wrapped his arms around me, of course, I wrapped my arms back and running. It's hard to let him go. The, all the tears that I had been holding back for the past two years, they all came flooding out because this was my son too. <laughs> and, you know, I don't have, I, if I didn't have one here, I had this one. I don't have to hold in my tears no more because I was holding them in. I'm not as angry as I was no more. Being here with my dad is a very strong healing process for me. It's a comfort zone. I think about him more now, because now when I see my pop, he looks so much, little brother looks so much like him. I don't have a choice but to think about him. It was, it was a bittersweet moment. Bitter because we were both here but sweet because we were both here.
that was Vince and his son, CJ. Such a powerful story. And, you know, even though what we just listened to was a tragedy, but there was beauty in it. And it was father and son finding each other during that tragic time. Steve, man, how did you come across the story? Oh, man, this is this story kind of just fell into my lap because it all happened in the workplace right in front of us. And um, I had two individuals that were really open about it, what was going on. So it was kind of easy to get it done. It wasn't an easy story, though, because because uh, they were still in this process. You know, it was a really raw event. So there was still a lot of tears. There was still a lot of stuff that you normally don't see men you know, going through. So it was really, really, it was it was powerful. It's Tim Hicks here. As I was listening to that, you know, I was like, you know, like thinking of, uh, you know, the time when I had said I lost my nephew and everything and, and, and thinking about how, you know, I wasn't able to really cry, you know, really wasn't able to really like show no emotions because I had so many people around me, you know, in, in the day room. And then I went back to my cell, got to got to have my celly around me. So, you know, I, I wasn't able to really let no tears out, wasn't able to really express myself about it, you know. So it, it built up this anger inside of me, you know. So uh, that that was that was a really powerful piece, though, man. How about for you, Anthony? Oh, my gosh. Um, it, it just shows, it's, to me, it showed grief is an unfinished business sometime. He was truly blessed. His CJ came to San Quentin because he can close the tragedy more than we can. They knew each other. They all knew. They were blood. So it, there's something different about that. And, and, you know, thinking about closure, grief has many stages to it, which can go on for a lifetime. And we definitely saw, you know, CJ and Vince's pain. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think, you know, for those two to both find each other, it was really a blessing in disguise. But not a lot of guys are fortunate to have a close family member. And plus, we don't want um, to see one of our closest family members inside a prison. But they were able to grieve together. And so many of us don't know how to grieve. CJ mentioned earlier in the piece about um, going on triple CMS. Now, triple CMS is an acronym for Correctional Clinical Case Management System, and it's the primary level of outpatient clinical mental health care in uh, CDCR. And so a lot of these guys can put in a, a sick call slip to talk to a mental health counselor. But like CJ said, he didn't feel comfortable talking to this person, you know, and that this person doesn't know his struggles and the neighborhood he came from. So it's kind of hard to relate to someone who really doesn't know your circumstances. And so for CJ, it's, and for many of us, it's hard to open up to a complete stranger. And so um, have any of you guys ever went through the mental health care system here and felt the same way? I've been triple CMS since uh, July 10th, 2017, and um, yes, I benefited from the program. Uh, we we have as much counseling as needed for us. Um, you are offered meds. I, I've been blessed. I've never taken meds. I wanted to do it holistically. They have a class called Grief. They offer various classes down in mental health, other substance abuse, anger management. They really have some individual programs that are designed for people that are in tune with their counselors. You know, for some people it works, but why is it such a problem for people of color 
to ask for help because I noticed like amongst my people, you know, Latinos and, and amongst a lot of uh, black people, it's almost like the, it's a stigma to ask for help. Yeah, um, it definitely is a stigma, Ryan. It's Tim here again. Um, I was triple CMS at a level four prison because up on arrival, I had lost another one of my relatives. So I needed somebody to talk to. Right. So. I, I uh, entered into the triple uh, CMS program, not aware of that being a problem in the system until after. So people started coming up to me, man, 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 why you, why you going to triple CMS, yeah. man? What, 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 what's, what's up, what's up with yeah. you, man? What, what y'all talking about? Like, what, I'm like, man, why are you in my business? You know what I'm saying? So I'm getting offended, but. I was told at that time that it's a sign of weakness. And I wind up getting out of the program because of that stigma, you know. How about you, Steve? <laughs> yeah, um, so basically where I grew up, there was two types of mental health treatment. You either go to the liquor store or you kick somebody's ass. That's just two no. different types of mental health treatment <laughs> yeah. that was available. Um, and that was what I seen and that is what... I engaged in, you know, if I had issues, these, this is how I kind of dealt with it. I think that for black people, the idea of going to a mental health specialist meant that I was actually going to the police because it was like, and I'm it's the same here. Yeah, and it's yeah, the same here to help me yeah. with my black problems. And that's that that's an issue because you don't have a lot of black mental health specialists around the neighborhood saying, hey, let me help you with your problems. My experience with that triple CMS program was I was always uh, confronted with a middle-aged white man who kind of told me that, well, this is prison. You're in prison. So if you're depressed, if you're stressed out, if you have anxiety, it's just because you're in prison, you know. And so they come into a system where they encounter a white male-dominated system where you have to go talk to a white doctor about your problems who is basically talking to you as, like they're an officer, not like a clinician. And so for a lot of people, that's a turnoff, you know. For us Latinos, like coming into prison, you're not allowed to talk to any mental health. You're not allowed to take any pills. And so for me, I didn't have no one to talk to, right, in, in the beginning of my incarceration. And um, so I had to just deal with, you know, the amount of time that I was getting, you know, people that I was losing and... I thought about hurting myself many times, right? I was always lucky to surround myself with, with guys that, you know, that did like care about, you know, me, but that, that was rare, right? Because in this environment, it's real toxic, right? And you have a toxic masculinity everywhere. And, you know, and it's funny because I was thinking about when I was younger, that if I cried, it was shunned. Like, you're not allowed to cry, right? You boys don't cry, you know? So you grow up and you try to hold in all this pain and you act out in anger. And so as you mature, you know, you kind of hold to those beliefs. Like, men don't cry. You know, we got to hold in our mud and we got to just, you know, push on through. But at some point we break. You know, there is a breaking point. Definitely, I have cried. Men cry. We cry. We just cry in our own ways, and we deal with it in our own ways. I've seen you um, crying right now. 
You and a, um, you're a private. Well, guy. actually, now that I'm older, you know, you came with that old man joke. But yeah. as you age, you, st- you cry more. You tend to. I start crying at shit. I be watching a, a movie yeah, come, or something. Uh, it's like, time, say, you know, it's like how you know, many of y'all have this? cried watching you're a commercial? Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's like, it's, I mean, it's like, uh, you know, I, I just blame it on allergies, you know. But I, I tend to. You know, the fan, little, the fan in your I face shed too. a little few tears every now and then. You know, <laughs> <laughs> but why? Why is that? Like, why can't? Why can't we men just openly cry? Yeah, like, why? Just Kate. Why not? For me to just be just crying, you know, it, it just seems so feminine. You know, like that's what women do. Yeah, you know what it's, I mean? it's the way we were trained. I comfort the woman when she cries. You know what I'm saying? Not, not who's going to comfort me? You know what I'm saying? I'm a man. So, so, so I, re- I remember growing up and I remember crying and my mom used to comfort me. So a woman comforted me. See, I ain't and, never got And hugs. so... Uh, but there we go with with those belief systems, like thinking that we're not allowed to cry, and I think we're stunning our growth as as men by doing. So, I'll, I'll tell you, my dad cried twice, and once when our our dog Lady died, and he had to bury Lady in the backyard. I never seen him cry, and then I had a dog named. Gosh, Lady. when I was when I was fifty, right before I was incarcerated, um, um, his younger brother, uh, Uncle Benji, passed away, and the whole machismo of the Carvalho family was there crying. I never saw my dad break down and cry. That was, uh, that was tough, but it's just, um, um, uh, part of grieving is letting go and it, you let go in different ways, man. You're absolutely right. I mean, for me, I, I feel like I haven't fully grieved for my mother. Like, um, I think That's it's really, name. yeah, it's, I think it's really going to hit home when I'm, when I finally parole and I go and I see her grave. Mm-hmm. And so, for me right now, it, it, I still, a part of me just isn't willing to accept it. Like sometimes I wake up and think like I can just call home and talk to her. And then like, then a thought will, you know, immediately hit me and say like, no, she's, she's passed on. But then I'll like push that thought out of my head. Like, yeah, all right, whatever. I'm not even going to think about that and just move forward. So I, you know, I cried when my mother passed away, but I, I feel like I still have a lot inside me to let go like a lot of tears yeah i have a lot of people telling me that you know when you get out you're gonna cry like a baby you're gonna cry like a baby you say you don't cry now but you're gonna cry i would love to be able to collapse into a woman's arms and cry oh who would i would love to be able to do that uh when i get out i think that that's probably necessary but um i don't know i don't know how much uh i may have harmed myself by not being willing to just openly express my emotions I'm, i'm still a work in progress you know, when that, when that, we all are still going know. through the grief. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It can last a lifetime. Who taught you that crying was just a woman's thing? It wasn't necessarily a man's thing. When I was young, you know, uh, in my home, you know, my parents, they were always um, telling me if somebody hit you, you better hit them back. You know, if, if, you know, they, they taught us, taught me and my brothers and sisters how to, to, to just be tough, you know, and it, it, it although it was love in, in our home, it wasn't that, that come here, that, that cuddly old, oh, my baby, you know, it wasn't none of that. You know, it, it, that's, that's where I learned it from, though. I learned it, learned it from my home. You know, I learned it from my parents, man. They, they just never, they did, they didn't give us that, that baby love. Yeah, I think, uh. For me, I, I I can relate to that. I know that 
when I got to a certain age, my mom was like, yeah, all your crying is just going to have to stop because I ain't going to coddle you, yeah. right? And it's almost like my mom bought into the whole uh, machismo uh, yeah. culture, yeah. right? Like, you know, boys don't cry, like get up, you know, brush it off and move on, right? And then my dad, my dad is a very, uh, he's a he's a tough man, right? And he um, had a tough childhood. And so for him, like, I, I wanted to basically show him that I was tough because I had never seen my dad cry. Actually, I seen my dad cry twice when I came and I got, you know, incarcerated and he came to visit and he cried. And I, that's, that's, that was the first time I actually seen him cry, like ball, right? And so I didn't know how to process that, right? Because I felt like my whole life, you were this tough man, you know, you were teaching me to be tough, you know, and then you're bawling in front of me. And like, when I seen him cry, like I cry too, cause I'm like, damn, that's my father, man. He just, he just cried right now. Like that means he really feels powerless, you know, in this whole situation, you know? So I felt like he did the best he could to try to protect me and my brother and sister. But like what he instilled in me and what my parents basically taught me was stuff that they learned from, you know, their parents. A couple of things resonated with me is when you said how uh, women and girls kind of buy in to the idea of uh, men don't cry or boys don't cry. I think there was a couple of times when I was young that I had a little girl call me a punk because I was crying. Uh, I had another little girl call me a sissy because I was crying. <laughs> and I think these were some very dramatic moments, traumatic moments for me that really helped mold and shape this idea that I will not be seen crying publicly by no little girls, you yeah. know, as, as a boy. And that just kind of evolved into the manhood. I find myself interacting with more people who are willing to show their emotions, their feelings. They're willing to cry. And I look like the oddball in this whole thing because I don't really do it as much as they do. But I think they're teaching me something, you know, at the same time. Yeah. And you know what, we're we're fortunate to be at San Quentin where they offer a variety of programs. And these programs help us to communicate. They help us to, you know, gain some insight on past traumas. And I think we have an advantage over the men out there in society because we have time to work on ourselves. And so with that comes emotional intelligence and we are able to grieve healthy. We can cry, you know, we, and a lot of us are in the same groups. So we're all taking these groups and feel comfortable being around one another and being able to express how we feel. And so that that's what sets us apart from, you know, the men out there, because we're trying to break that cycle, you know, and hopefully pass these tools that we've learned onto the next generation of young men. We incarcerated people are more in tune with ourselves and, you know, and be in touch with our emotional intelligence, you know, way more than people out on the street. I had those times being in a media center, just, I think this is a group, you know, just being inside here. I've had those times you know, being uh, in, in the San Quentin News when myself was in some type of hot water or whatever and just found myself like, like, damn, I just I, I almost shed a tear over this 
You know what I mean? Like, like oh, what, the, what the hell is going on with me? You yeah. know what I'm saying? But just being able to just have that clarity of mind, you know, that that's powerful, you know, really. That was this, this is the first prison I've ever been at where you go through these trauma-intensive groups where you kind of just sit around and, and hear people crying and you kind of, like, feel their emotions with them. And everybody was in a circle, and people were talking about their crimes, talking about some very hard stuff. And I was just like, you know, regular run-of-the-mill group. I'm sitting there eating my ice cream because I just came from the store. And everybody, this this real intense moment came, and, and the guy right next to me was crying. He was bawling, and, and everybody was just, like, in this moment of feeling this connection with him. You know, and I was like... I've never been through this before. Like this is a power. This is some really powerful, intense stuff. And I finished my ice cream, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, but I understood. But I understood the magnitude of what I was getting as opposed to what I got at other prisons that I was at. It was way different. But to get to that point and that level of understanding. You know, that it's important to do that. I think it took me a long time to get to that place. And looking at uh, O'Bannon and his son, you know, this 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 idea of them coming together and being able to to have this moment where they both were crying, two grown men crying in front of everybody. That was a really powerful moment in which you saw how much healing can come from that, you know, how much pain can be processed, you know, with a few tears. So I thought it was important people hear that, you know, to give other people an opportunity, you know, to learn about what that means. You know, guys, I, um, I'm really honored to have you guys sitting in on this episode. And I feel like we, um, you know, shed some light on a lot of issues that us men deal with you know, growing up and and even incarcerated too. And so I hope that, um, you know, because of this conversation and whoever is listening to this can maybe gain some insight and and maybe just cry once in a while, you know? Let it out. Let it out. Yeah, just let it out. That's all you gotta yeah. do. Let it yeah, out. It helps with the healing. Yeah. It really does. I'm Ryan Pagan. Thanks for listening. You can find Uncuff on the radio at KALW 91.7 FM at weareuncuffed.org or subscribe to Uncuffed in any podcast player. The Uncuffed crew at San Quentin is Timothy Hicks, Anthony Carvalho, Steve Brooks, Juan Haynes, Brian Acey, Greg Eskridge, and me, Ryan Pagan. Thanks to the team at KALW Public Radio, Nena Gensler-Debs, Angela Johnston, Sonia Paul, Kathy Novak, Eli Wirtschafter, James Rollins, Ben Trefney, and our sound designer, Eric Maserati E. Abercrombie. Our theme music is by David Jassy. And thanks to the staff at San Quinn who make this possible, Skylar Brown and Lieutenant Barry who approved this episode. We fact-checked everything to the best of our ability. Uncuff gets support from the California Arts Council and the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. Thanks for listening. <laughs>